May all grace, mercy, and peace come to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We continue this evening in view of God's mercy, looking at mercy and relationships, how we relate to one another, how we mend those fences, and what that means for us as God's people. We've heard in the readings how Paul calls us out to be tenderhearted, caring, and loving towards one another, and that's to a degree. But God also calls us to stand in his word. And when God calls us as Christians to stand in his word and to administer his word, he calls us to do it in such a way that Paul says promotes peace. So I googled the word accord, okay, the other day because I wanted to see if there were secondary and tertiary meetings. I know that accord means agreeance, you know, agreement and harmony and whatnot. And I also wanted to, to look up the different kinds of peace accords that have happened out, you know, from a historical perspective. And when I googled it, you know what the first thing that popped up was? A Honda Accord. <laughs> That's right. And it went right to the Honda website, okay? And this is what I found out. I thought this was kind of interesting. It talks about the history of the Honda. Honda was first introduced in 1976, and it became a runaway success. Here's what the website had to say about setting the standard for the automotive industry. For nine generations, the funded drive accord has consistently brought the automotive mainstream unforeseen levels of technology, fuel efficiency, safety, and more importantly, reliability. It's interesting how a car called the Accord could galvanize the auto industry. The irony of it all is not everybody would be in agreement with that. But how long do Accords last? That's debatable, and I'm not talking about the car. We know that Hondas are reliable. What I am talking about are Accords, agreements, peace accords and whatnot. They're very well known to have a very short shelf life. In the beginning of the books of Acts, we're told that the disciples were all in one accord. It doesn't take long, however, before the accord that the Christians experienced starts falling apart. It's threatened. Disagreements start erupting. They were voiced. Hostilities began to arise between people. The book of Acts even says of the relationship between the apostle Paul and Barnabas, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. And as one moves on in the New Testament, the epistles of Paul to the Corinthian Christians describe significant discord in that church. Paul's letter to the Galatians presents a conflict with legalists in the church. How about the church in Ephesus? Well, there, that uh, letter was uh, written to mend a rift between the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. And so goes the rest of the New Testament. It was a challenge for those first century Christians to be in one accord. You know what? Not much is different in the 21st century, is it? It's a challenge for 21st century Christians to be in one accord. We too find it hard to live in harmony at times. Yet we're called to be at peace with one another. And that's not easy. It's difficult. We need mercy in our relationships with one another. Thankfully, thankfully, God provides mercy to us so that we can show mercy to others. And then we're able to live in one accord in view of God's mercy, but not apart from it. Certainly not apart from it. Although we seek to be in one accord with one another, frequently we're just the opposite, aren't we? We're in discord. 
Our text from Ephesians chapter 4 identifies some of the sources of that discord today. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupting talk is what the apostle Paul identifies as engendering discord or sowing discord. And what is that corrupting talk? Paul goes on to give those descriptors, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, pretty wicked. You know, the word that is translated as corrupting here is frequently used in the manner of a food that spoils. It's like a banana. You know, when you first see them in the grocery store, they're all pretty yellow. Sometimes they're green, right? If you get them, because you know that you're not going to get to them in time and you let them ripe. But typically they're, they're yellow and they got that Chiquita sticker on there and it, it looks inviting, right? And then you go home and you use what you're going to use and you forget about it for a few days, right? And it ends up, like in my household, it ends up sitting up here on a shelf or it gets smushed between the toaster and something else. It gets all mangled and twisted and then it looks kind of gnarly. And then it sits for a few days. And not only does it look gnarly, but then it starts to stink. I hate to taste that. In fact, that's when you pitch it out, right? And then you go back to the grocery store the next Sunday and buy a whole another six-pack of bananas. But that's because the banana has been corrupted. The seal's been broken on it, right? That's what happens with food. This is very true of our relationship with one another. Sometimes our relationships are... Well, they're beautiful. They're def- delightful when we are in one accord. But when our relationships are subjected to corrupting influences, such as what Paul was talking about here, things become bitter, ugly, messy looking. Even in the church, there is sin. The ugly influence of sin corrupts our church relationships at times. So is discorder in our church family. A trusted friend gossips about you church leader snubs you, a colleague ridicules you, and you become the victim of corrupt talk. Or perhaps sometimes, dare I say, we're not the victim, we're the source of it. Maybe we cause the decay of relationships when someone disagrees with us in a church meeting. We resent it and seek to destroy the reputation of that person in our congregation. When we don't feel valued by a church leader, we make it our mission to undermine their authority. When a decision is made that's contrary to our very own opinions, we become bitter in how we treat one another. And of course, when we feel wronged by others, our immediate inclination is to what? To turn against them, to seek revenge, to retaliate, to harm. Yes, even in the church, those conditions arise. As one frustrated pastor commented to me once, he said, you know, The commandment that's most neglected in our church is the one that says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. It's for reasons like these that the Apostle Paul warns in Ephesians 4, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But that's not all Paul says in our text. Paul provides a proscription. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but immediately follows that up with a prescription but only such talk as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul says that our talk should not be for the purpose of corruption, but for the goal of construction, for building up. We're not to tear others down, but instead make them whole. Build them up in the body of Christ. 
This is what makes for healthy relationships in a church. It's what makes overall a healthy church. The key to constructing harmonious relationships then is, is this. It's forgiveness. In our text, the Apostle Paul offers this constructive counsel. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the most important piece. As God in Christ forgave you. Sometimes I think we forget about that. This is why in this Lenten season, it's in view of God's mercy. Forgive others as God, Christ, forgives you. That's powerful when you sit there and think about it. Because if I sit there and think about it, I, he should have destroyed me. Probably should have destroyed every one of us. He could have, but he didn't. In Christ, he forgives us. That doesn't mean that we have a license to do whatever we want to do, does it? No. It means that we repent, that we're remorseful, that we turn back to him, and then he's waiting there with open arms to shower us with forgiveness. When engaged in corrupting talk, though, we are the source of corruption. And that's what we're called to repent of, too. As Paul says, we are to put it away. Get rid of it. Throw it out. Confess to God, and not only God, but the ones that we have wronged. It's what God calls us to do as well. To look those people in the eyes that we have wronged and say, I'm sorry, and mean it. Lent is a penitential season. And so especially at this time, we're to confess our sins to God and to one another and seek reconciliation with those that we've wronged. The good news is, is that God promises forgiveness. God forgives our sins for the sake of his son, Christ Jesus. And Christ, what was God doing? He's reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. But he reconstructs our broken relationships with them, reconciling us to himself in Jesus. Through Jesus' suffering, through Jesus' death, and his resurrection and ascension. God has forgiven our corruption and restored a right relationship to him. This is mercy. Can you name mercy in your life? Can you name the time that was your deep, darkest hour? When you exhausted all your options and you went back to God and you poured out your soul to him? And then you had a peace that God brings to you that's mercy. When God could have turned away, when God could have shunned, God embraced. Sometimes, though, we're not the source of the corruption. Sometimes we are the recipients of it. And this happens when somebody else sins against us. This occurs when others direct corrupting talk at us, when they slander and blind us. And how do we respond in order to be constructive in those moments? Because what's our first inclination? to retaliate, to get back. And we hurt, and we grieve, and we raise an angry fist, and words fly out of our mouths that we don't even know that we're doing it sometimes. So how do we respond in a constructive manner when that happens to us? The key is given to us in verse 32 of the text. Paul says, be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. We forgive those who sin against us. We pray that God would fill us with that spirit that helps us to have a spirit of, of unity and harmony. Paul asserts, God and Christ forgave you. That's when we pardon the sins of others. We forgive in view of God's mercy. Years ago, there was a young preschooler who was reciting the Lord's Prayer out loud. She recited the words as she heard them, but they weren't quite, well, let's say they weren't quite accurate. You know, most preschoolers, when they try to recite something, they don't always get it right. But the message of it was right, and it was pretty cool. Yet her rendition captured a very significant truth. And here's what she said. She said, forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes, right? But there's a truth in there. There's a significant truth in there. Indeed, even in the church, there are others who put trash in our very baskets. (laughs) They deliver the corrupting talk of bitterness and anger and clamor and slander and everything else that goes against what Christ is. And Paul tells them and us to put it all away. Take out the trash. We take out the trash by asking for forgiveness. And we don't let the trash putrefy our heads and our hearts. We release to God the wrongs done to us and the slander broken against us, and we forgive. Forgive us our trash baskets. We cry to God in this season of Lent. And if you have his mercy in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. In the power of his mercy and grace, we now forgive those who put trash in our baskets. And to God be all the glory. Amen.